Well, I, I wonder, have you ever been walking uh, in the hills and you, you kind of see the, the, the top of the hill and you're slogging away and you're thinking, well, it's okay, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. And you get over the top and you see you're not almost there, stretching off into the fog. There's another hill, you're not at the top yet. Uh, it's a bit like that, I think, for the, um, the parents, the babies and the toddlers that we've given thanks to God for this morning. You prepare for nine months, don't you? You're assembling all sorts of gadgets and gizmos you never thought existed, going to health checks, painting walls, and finally, phew, the baby's here, hooray, it's over. No, it's just beginning, it's just beginning. Well, this book in the Bible called Nehemiah, it's like they've just reached what they thought was the top of the hill. They've been rebuilding the broken down walls of their city, Jerusalem. Stones have been laid, gates have been put in. They've done the snagging, they cut the ribbon on the dung gate. It's over, we're finished, they think. The job's done. And no, no, actually, God says, it's just starting. Because it's never really been about the walls. It's been about the people. And now... They need to be spiritually rebuilt. Well, the same is true for our two churches. We're waiting with excitement to see if we're going to find, form one new church, and I hope we do. But if we do, the work is only then just starting, isn't it? Because it's not just about building a church. It's about building a people for God. And God has much work that he wants to do in us and through us. And I wonder, maybe you're here this morning and you, you feel rather like that broken down city. Things just aren't right. You feel far away from God. Maybe there are bits of your life that, that are a mess. Perhaps you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're, you're wondering, do I, do I want to let God start that building work in me? Is it worth the effort? Well, our passage from the Bible this morning shows What happens when God comes into a person's life and revives them? What happens when he breathes his life into them, building something new? Uh, Have a look at uh, uh, verse 1 with me. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the the Lord had commanded for Israel. So the people come together. They they gather from all the towns and villages around Jerusalem, not to see a football match or to hear a rock concert. They gather because they want to rebuild spiritually. Seventy years ago, they were carried out of their land into exile. Now they're back. And they want to rededicate themselves to God. And they didn't have to. I mean, nobody's telling them to do this. And after 56 days building those walls nonstop, you think they want to lie in and a, a bit of a holiday. But instead, almost spontaneously, they come together to ask God to revive them. And if we want to grow spiritually, then it won't happen on our own. Sometimes it does have to happen, like with the persecuted church. You don't have any choice, but that's not God's plan. 
I know some people listening to this for health reasons can't meet. Others, you're working shifts. We understand that. But, but Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. We pursue God together. I need you to build me up. You need me to encourage you. So how's that going to happen? How are they going to be changed and revived? Well, look what they tell the the preacher, Ezra. Bring out the book of the law. Literally, Ezra, bring out the Bible. It's not, you know, got a little word for us, vicar? It's, no, Ezra, you want to teach us the Bible. We're not interested in what you think. Teach us what the Bible says. I wonder if you can feel the hunger here. It's a desire to know God, to grow in their love for him, to, to hear God speaking to them. There's an expectancy. They're saying, Let, let's discover in this book the kind of people we're meant to be. Let's find out the kind of God we're meant to follow. I think most people today listening to that would think that is completely barking mad, wouldn't they? I mean, there are lots of books, Andy. Why this book? And why a book? Why not a spiritual experience or a a vision or a trance? Even some religious rituals better than a book. But the Bible doesn't see itself like that. Very interesting. If If you read the Bible and what the Bible says about the Bible, it says things like this. Paul says that this book is God breathed, that the words are breathed out by God to us. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active. If we approach it with the right attitude, God's Spirit will speak to us. There's something timeless about this book. Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God endures forever. This book is not fashionable. It's always relevant. And through it, we're told that God can guide me. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. God can use this book to kind of feed me, nourish me, fill my soul. Jesus says man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. David says it's it's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. And the people in Jerusalem knew that. So bring out the book, Ezra. They start a kind of a charm. Bring out the book. In verse 2, Ezra does his job. Verse 3, get this. Seatbelts on. He reads it aloud from daybreak till noon. I kind of did a bit of calculation. I think that's me finishing preaching around about four o'clock this afternoon. (sighs) It's okay. Breathe. (laughs) But did you notice the big emphasis on understanding? Look at at verse 7. The Levites, those the kind of priests, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God making it clear and giving so that the people understood what was being read. Now, it's possible they're translating from Hebrew into Aramaic, which is kind of the language everybody spoke, but they're probably also conducting little mini Bible studies. Ezra kind of speaks for a bit, he stops, 
the Levites gather people around. What do you think he meant by that? How does that apply to us? They're not asking, this is important, what does that mean to you? What is your truth? No, this is the truth. So what does it mean? They're helping the people understand. They're teaching them what God is saying. Do you want to know this God this morning? Do you want to know him? The one who created you, who knit you together in your mother's womb. Do you want to know the most powerful and exciting and fascinating being in the universe? If you do, then look at the Bible. It's such a relief, isn't it? I don't have to go on some pilgrimage to some far distant land or experience some spiritual feeling. Look at the Bible. Perhaps you come this morning and, and frankly you're disinterested and bored and turned off. And perhaps that's been the case for weeks or months now. Well, seeing this, would you pray most urgently, please God, give me back that hunger and enthusiasm for you and your word. Would you, would you pray that? It is serious. Jesus says this, whoever has will be given more and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. See, the living God is speaking to us. And if our response to him is, oh, whatever, I don't care, then he'll take away that little bit of understanding that we have and we'll grow spiritually thinner. But if we're going, God, I don't really understand everything the preacher said this morning, but I know I need to and I want to and I want you to help me and I want to know more of you and I want you to fill me and fill my soul and guide me and direct me and breathe life into me, then he will. He promised. And we will grow. He will spiritually revive us. But what does that revival look like? Well, the people in Jerusalem show us, actually, show us simply three things. Very simple. First, sorrow for sins that brings change. As Paul was reading, you couldn't help notice there are strong emotions that sweep through the crowd, aren't they? Verse 9, the people start to weep as they understand what is said. This book doesn't just speak to the head the message kind of seeps into their veins, it gets into their bloodstream, it reaches their heart, and it triggers their tears. I always used to say to my kids, I don't mind you crying, just crying for something that's worth it. Not that your sisters knit your toy. Oh, you say, this is, I, I've seen this before, it's just emotionalism, isn't it? Somebody whipping up the crowd. Really? Remember what's being read. It's almost certainly the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And they're hardly the greatest weepies in the Bible, I promise you. There's no music being played. There's no silver-tongued orator. It's just Bible study, an Old Testament Bible study. They heard and understood that God had promised them life, but then they realized that they turned away from him. And as the word was read, God's spirit... He's doing something powerful in them. He's changing their hearts. He may even be doing it right now. Right now in your heart. 
That's what spiritual revival looks like, hearts that are changed. But if God is going to do that, then he needs to tell us what is wrong with our hearts. He's got to give us the diagnosis straight. A number of you here will know I was pretty sick last year, and I saw more of the doctor, frankly, than I I would ever like to. No offense, doctors. But when I went there, I didn't want her to kind of take my pulse, look at my tongue and say, there, there, Mr. Upton, everything's going to be all right. It's the last thing I knew everything wasn't all right. I had a sense of that. I just needed her to tell me what was wrong so I could begin to get better. And that's what the Bible does. God's spirit, through his word, diagnoses our human problem. Not so that we can lie around feeling miserable and kind of whip ourselves. And No, but that we can get better. The only question is, are we willing to hear the truth about us? Will you read the Bible? Maybe for the first time in years with an open mind and a warm heart. Speak to me, God. He will. Sorrow for sins that brings change. We can bear that sorrow because of what happens next. Look at verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who are instructing all the people said to them, this day is holy, set apart to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, no, no, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who've nothing prepared. This day is holy to our God. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. We can face up to our sin and failure because the joy of the Lord brings us strength. There's there's a time for weeping, isn't there? Don't misunderstand this. Someone who you love dies or gets sick. There's a redundancy at work. We see terrible news on the web. There's a time for weeping. Nehemiah says, this is not that time. This is a day special to God. So get up. Basically, he says, it's in the Bible, get up and party. Break out the Kit Kats and the Tango and rejoice. This is a great day. But why would they do that? (laughs) Nehemiah, Ezra's just highlighted our sin. Why should we rejoice? Well, rejoice because of what you have had read to you from the Bible. Yes, they've been faithless. Yes, they turned their backs on God. But again and again, they'd heard the same thing. In Genesis, they'd heard how God provided a substitute, a ram caught in a thicket so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his beloved son. When Ezra got to the book of Exodus, they'd have learned how God gave them a lamb to be sacrificed for every household so that God's righteous anger would pass over them. Leviticus, they'd heard about God's instruction on the Day of Atonement. A single lamb was sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. It was pictured for them again and again and again. Someone can be made right with God, can be forgiven only on the basis of the lamb that God has provided. Now, they wouldn't have understood why. They'd have had to trust God. But we know why. 
Jesus walks into view and his cousin John the Baptist goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the real Lamb. That Lamb was a a sign pointing to Jesus. And this is what I, I find following Jesus Christ so amazing. Rather than saying, look, let's just pretend you're not, you're all right, you're okay. Actually, in our head, we go, well, you don't know me very well then. Rather, the Bible enables me to face my sin full on, all of it, and then to know that I'm forgiven, that I'm loved. Rather than living my life under guilt and condemnation, the Bible says that because like a lamb, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, I can be forgiven, I can be free, I can be joyful. Do you ever watch um, talent shows uh, on the telly? Yeah, you know, X Factor or um, Bake Off or Britain's Got Talent. If you do, you'll know that, let's say, a singer comes in in week one and Anton Deck or somebody like that goes up and interviews them and they say, stupid question, how do you feel? I'm terrified, Ant, absolutely terrified. I'm about to play on national TV to millions of people. Of course they are. They've got to sing their hearts out because they've got to sing better than they've ever sung before so that the great British public will vote them into week two. And week by week, it goes on like this until the day comes when hopefully they got to the final. And if they win, they get a recording contract and they're set up for life. And if they lose, they're forgotten. And can you see the pressure on them as they perform, you know, standing there with a guitar and their knees kind of knocking? But then they win. And what's the first thing Anton Deck say to them? Come on and sing for us. Come on and play. But now it's different, right? Now they've got their contract. They've got their quarter of a million quid. So now they come out and you can see the joy on their face, the delight. All the other contestants are dancing around. And as they sing, they're parting. Why? Because they know now they've already won. There's no pressure. They don't have to perform. They don't have to prove themselves anymore. They don't need to. Friends, that is what the Christian life is like. We've already won. Not because of anything we've done. Ben greeted you this morning and said, we're a bunch of imperfect people. We are. But we've won because of what Christ has done. And now we don't have to perform week after week after week, trying to get God's approval, going through life thinking, have I done enough, been good enough, scored enough brownie points? Christ's done it all. He's forgiven our sins, adopted us into the Father's family. He's won for us. And this means when it says that the joy of the Lord is our strength, just like that winner on the X Factor draws strength from the joy of knowing that they've won, we draw strength from the joy of knowing that Christ has done everything for us. You don't need to think one moment, oh, he loves me, and the next moment, he hates me because I've been bad. 
Christ done it. He's won. You're forgiven. So take time. Take time to think about that because as you do, you will begin to experience this joy and it'll become like a kind of strength for you. Whether things are going well or not in your life and the world around, you'll still know joy because nothing can take that away from you. And if you never thought about this before, then think, what would my life be like if I didn't have to perform for other people, for myself, for God, if I didn't have to earn it? That's what revival looks like. The joy of the Lord brings strength. Look, just briefly, the final thing here is obedience that brings revival. Next day, um, uh, verse 13, Ezra gathers together the heads of the family and he, he teaches them and they discover from the Bible they're meant to keep another special feast. But it's a bit odd. They're to make tents and live in them for a few days. Why? Well, it reminds them that there was a time when they were wandering through the wilderness after they'd left Egypt when they were far away from home in Babylon. Now they're home. Now they're in Jerusalem. But it's not home. It's just temporary, isn't it? One day they'll live forever in a new creation with the one who loved them and gave himself for them. And we need to find ways of reminding ourselves of that. Because we live in this immediate, instant age. But what's important is the billions of years in the future. You were created for eternity. So they read this in the Bible, and what do they do? They obey. Nobody says, you know, that's a little bit weird, isn't it? I'm not going to do that. Nobody looks at it and says, well, may have been applicable back then to live in tents, but it certainly isn't today. No, they obeyed God. Tents go up in the city. They have another party. Knowing you've been forgiven, knowing your sins have been washed away, knowing you don't have to perform anymore, doesn't mean you end up as a spiritual slob. Oh, well, I don't have to do anything then, do I? It's the opposite. It leads us to want to obey God. It brings revival to our hearts. Look, we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but it starts to change us and transform us and make us into the men or women that God would have us be the man or woman we want to be. If you were with us last week, then you'll remember that Matt taught us from 2 Timothy 2.2 that as a church, we're just a generation from extinction and a moment away from revival. And if, if we're going to see that revival grip our town and our country, it doesn't begin out there. It begins in here. I think when people are being honest about Christianity, one of the things that they, they sometimes say to me is, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And you know what? I think they may have a point, right? If God revives our hearts, then what happens is we stop being hypocrites, saying one thing, doing another, and we start to become the real thing. We hate our sin. We mourn it. We ask forgiveness from others and from God. We know the joy that strengthens us in the most painful and difficult of situations. And we seek to do what God has asked us to do. Imagine if God did that in our lives together. Revived us. 
Imagine how that would transform not just us, but those around us as well. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to just reflect on that in song. As they come up, let me just lead us in prayer. Father, we want to just say thank you so much that you're not afraid to tell us the truth. But it's truth that is told with the knowledge that you love us. You love us so much that you were willing to give your one and only son to die for us, to forgive us, to wash us clean, to make us into new men and women. Please do that. Father, please remove the stain of hypocrisy from our lives and help us now to live, to to really live as men and women of God. And Father, if all this is new to us this morning, if we're just trying to wrap our our brains around it, thank you that, that actually you've given us your Bible. We can understand it. And you have promised to speak to us through it. Please, by your spirit, would you do that? For we ask this for your glory. Amen.